The reading from God's Word this morning is from John 10. I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate, whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also and they too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. This is God's word to us today. Uh, let's have uh, our second reading, which comes from the book of Esther. Esther chapter 4, we'll read uh, from verse 1 to the end of the chapter. And just while you're, uh, if you do have a few Bibles and you're finding Esther... Um, before I read uh, what Joe read from the Gospel of John a few minutes ago, uh, becomes relevant, particularly the last verse or two that he read about Jesus willingly laying down his life for his people. But if I could ask you now to tune your attention to Esther chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Let's hear God's word together. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. 
She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, and assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Verse 12, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Friends, may I lead us in a word of prayer as we consider God's word together? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for what we've just read. Lord, we thank you that as uh, our brother John prayed just a few moments ago, that your word is infallible. And not only do we take a stand on that here as a congregation, but we can have confidence in that for the life of this congregation and for the benefit of each of us. So Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit now will make this infallible word go into our hearts and minds and challenge and change us. And we ask, Lord, for your help now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, the book of Esther is a Patrick family favourite. It has all the hallmarks of a riveting story. And if you happen to be you know, a newcomer to church, not familiar with the book of Esther, perhaps, um, I apologise, I've sort of read, picked up reading halfway, haven't I, which is a little bit silly. But I'm going to go through some things as we go. But it has danger, this story. It has palace intrigue. It has conspiracy. It has a beautiful heroine. It has courage. And of course, like all good stories, it has a joyful ending. 
Now we're going to take a very brief look at this uh, book of Esther today, particularly, of course, chapter 4, which I just read to you. And the key verse, which is, you know, I get the title of the sermon from, and whoever designed the, the bulletin, it was very clever, they put it on the front, which is a great idea, is, chapter, is verse 14 of chapter 4. And we're going to consider three main points from our passage this morning. The first point is the need to wake up. The second point is the need for courage. And the third point is the need for a better mediator, right? The need for a better mediator. So let's go straight for our first idea, which is the need to wake up. Now, as I've hinted already, we have to understand what the background to our passage is. So just listen to me while I fill you in. Esther was a Jewish girl living thousands of years ago in the great Persian Empire. The king of the Persians was Xerxes, is how this translation puts his name, and he had banished his first wife, whose name was Vashti, on the grounds that she did not come to her when he beckoned her to come during a great feast that he had thrown for all of his friends. And so the king then set up a great search for a new wife. The search really ran more like a competition, but perhaps remind you of some of those reality TV <laughs> reality, what would they call it? The, the, the emperor wants a wife? I don't know. Some rubbish like that. But it, really, it was more like a beauty contest, wasn't it? And the young woman, Esther, you know, the star of our story, she was particularly beautiful. And she had a cousin, because Esther's parents were no longer alive, so she had a cousin called Mordecai, who really was in the place of a father for her. Now, Esther was obedient to Mordecai. He's a father figure, she's a, she is obedient to him, which is, of course, a good thing. But we read twice uh, in chapter 2 of the book that she obeyed him in something significant, to not reveal to anyone in the palace that she was a Jew. Now, it's a sad truth that the Jews have throughout history been in a precarious situation. I'm sure some of us at least know Jewish families who have taken westernised names and sort of blended in so as not to stand out, uh, particularly in some parts of, 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 the, of, of uh, Europe. You know, they sort of need to blend in. In the case of Mordecai, this could well have been so, now, of course, the Jews, the background here is they've been conquered from their, their land and carried into exile. But it also seems that, while it may sound like a clever strategy to keep Esther in favour with everyone in the royal court, there is a degree of separation of Esther from her people, and that becomes more apparent as the story rolls on. Esther is chosen by King Xerxes to be his queen, and... That separation, of course, between Esther and the rest of the Jewish population becomes wider. Now, this time, Esther's cousin Mordecai, he uncovers a plot to assassinate the king, and he shall later on be richly rewarded for that. You read in chapter 3 of the book that also during this time there arises a man called Haman, who becomes very prominent in the kingdom, second in place only to the king himself. And Haman has a hatred for Mordecai. That hatred starts by Mordecai's refusal simply to bow down and pay homage to Haman you know, as he's gaining prominence. And in chapter 3, Haman is informed that Mordecai is a Jew. And he is so enraged against Mordecai that he plots to have 
all of Mordecai's people killed. Imagine hating someone that much that you'd wipe out a race, commit genocide, just because you wanted to, you know, get back. And Haman is a very clever guy. He persuades the king of the necessity of killing the Jews, convincing the king that these people are the one group who are disobedient to the king's commands. And then in verse 13 of chapter 3, we read of the edict that the king of the Jews be, uh, sorry, that, from the king, sorry, that the Jews be annihilated in every province of the Persian Empire. And that order is said to be irrevocable. And that brings us to the start of our passage in chapter 4. So if you follow along, please, chapter 4. I'll remind you, verses 1 and 2 tell us this. It says, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. Mordecai had it good up until that point, or so he had been lulled into thinking. Think about it, right? His cousin is the queen. And Mordecai himself had you know, foiled a plot to kill the king, so he himself is in a plum position. There's big rewards on the way. And in an instant, the enemy of Mordecai, who happens to be the enemy of God's people, has undone all of the privilege. He has eradicated all of the ease. He has cancelled all of the comforts, and the Jews face total extermination and so Mordecai is awakened from his comfortable slumber and his reaction is appropriate isn't it he tears his clothes that was how the ancients would express grief you know tearing robes you know he puts on sackcloth no more comfortable clothes he's itchy you know it's not very glamorous is it like a potato bag you know and he chucks ashes all over himself and he goes about this the streets of Susa the capital city crying out at the top of his voice and his words and his tone form a, a, a bitter clarion call to wake up the rest of the Jews to their situation. And as verse 3 in our passage tells us, he is joined in every province of the Persian Empire by the Jewish population in mourning, fasting, in lamentation and in weeping. But do you know what is lacking? You notice what is lacking there, friends. What would we normally expect to read about in the Holy Scriptures when the people of God are, are, are fasting and lamenting? <laughs> thank you, thank you. Prayer, that's exactly right, prayer. There is no mention of prayer. Now those of you who know your Old Testament or have attended any given decent Sunday school would know the story of Jonah, wouldn't you? What happened? He warned that great city Nineveh of its pending doom and the people, or rather I should say the pagan people of Nineveh, what did they do? They fasted and called out mightily to God. This tells us, of course, of the other problem of the Jewish people being assimilated into the society of each of the Persian provinces. They were not only in a precarious position, politically speaking, but they had drifted from the fundamentals of their faith and did not seek the Lord in prayer before acting. Back to the story, in verse 4 we read this, it says, When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. 
Now, keep in mind that Mordecai wearing sackcloth was not allowed to enter the king's gate. So think of the king's gate perhaps a little bit like us wanting to enter into Parliament House. You know, there's just a certain point you can't go past if you're, um, you know, in a certain state. Uh, you know, at Parliament House they have a guy with a, a rather nifty-looking submachine gun who's hidden behind a pillar. I was there a few years ago. Um, in the same way, you don't want to go past this point and risk being in the king's uh, courts. So Mordecai is reliant upon others to report to Queen Esther the situation outside the palace. And notice again that Mordecai does not appeal to the Lord in prayer. Instead, he appeals to Esther in her strategic position. And that is what happens. Esther's ladies-in-waiting, her maids and her eunuchs, carry the message to Esther. Now the fact that this had to occur, that she didn't know what was going on, shows us how separated she was from the life of her own people, that she had to be told about it. And she even had to be told about the grief and distress of her own father figure, Mordecai. But what is Esther's response? She sends garments, fresh garments to Mordecai to replace the sackcloth that he had donned. It seems that she wants to stop Mordecai from making a spectacle. Now Esther is rightly remembered for her courage and heroism, isn't she? We call our daughters Esther for a reason, don't we? But Esther is right right as it is to remember her for her courage that is not quite who she is at this stage in the story. Every Jew from Ethiopia to India, this is how big, if you have a look on your maps later, just have a look at how big this empire was. Every Jew from Ethiopia in northern Africa to India, was in mourning and weeping, yet Esther is concerned about Mordecai making a fuss outside the king's gate. Nevertheless, out of concern for Mordecai, in verse 5, she sends a trusted messenger, Hathak, the eunuch, to ask what is the matter. Now, if we have young people, or anyone who doesn't know what a eunuch is, a eunuch, without going into any details at all, is a man who has uh, certain qualifications which means he can be trusted around princesses and queens and whatnot because he will not have any wrong plans. Very trusted eunuchs in the ancient world were often very powerful men, uh, very politically powerful men. Uh, So she sends Hathak to find out what is the matter. Then in verses 6 and 7, Mordecai tells the whole problem to Hathak. And in verse 8, he even gives Hathak a copy of the king's decree so that he can take it to show Esther with the purpose being to, verse 8, to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Note the desperation, friends, of Mordecai here. To, to urge or, or even command, in another translation, the queen to do this. To remind her that it is for her people. In verse 9, Hathak does as he is ordered. He, you know, he's one very useful eunuch, isn't he? And then in verses 10 to 11, we get Esther's initial response. She pretty much says it is not possible for her to do what Mordecai is asking her to do. Even people from far away know, she, she reminds Mordecai, that no one can enter the king's presence unless he holds out the royal scepter to them. Mordecai, it is implied, should know better than to ask what he's asking. And to make things worse... The king had not shared a bed with his wife for 30 days. Esther is right, isn't she? Humanly speaking, she is dead right in thinking 
that there is no foreseeable opportunity to get close to the king. The way of appeal, it seems, is closed. Salvation is so very far away. Friends, it's a good time to pause to apply this first point to our lives as Christians. And the first way to apply this is to ask you, and I'm asking myself, believe me, is if you are aware that God's people throughout the ages are always in a precarious position in in worldly terms and that persecution can come at any moment. We sometimes talk about anti-Christian sentiment in our society. My my family's tired of me ranting about certain, I won't name them, I accidentally did Launceston a few weeks ago, certain news outlets which always seem to have a thing against the church, you know, or against Christians. We talk about that, and that is a real thing. But here in Tasmania, our churches are not being firebombed, are they? We're not worried about some gunman coming through the door, are we? We're not being put into prison camps for being Christians. But do you realise that this situation could change very quickly? And the real question is, and again I'm asking me, okay, the real question is, have you gotten too comfortable being accepted as a liked member of society? Has it damaged your relationship with God? Has it cooled the zeal of your love for the Lord? Have you forgotten that the world hates Christians because it hates Jesus and that we should be worried if everyone thinks we are wonderful? Have you been so keen to show all your friends and work colleagues that you're just like them, that you've become just like them? With the loose language, the rough speech, the gossip, the popular music with unclean themes and lyrics with the viewing of things that you should not view. And I'm not talking about the hard stuff. I'm just talking about what you get on on the telly or on the streaming services we pay $13 or whatever it is a month for. Striving for expensive pleasures and luxuries. It's a huge trap. Sunday sports that will keep you away from church. Let none of us, and again, this certainly includes me, think that it is okay To be like the world. Christ told us, to paraphrase, that we are in the world but not to be of the world. And if we have become too worldly friends, then let us remember the comfortable state that Mordecai was in, whereby he did not even think to pray. And he had to be jolted out of his cosy existence. Think of the detachment of Esther from the suffering of all the other Jews. Are we so secure in our worldly luxuries that we are deaf to the cry of our fellow Christians who suffer for the faith? And I put it to you that the answer is, for the most part, yes. And so there is a spur, isn't there? There is a spur here from the way Esther is in our passage up until this point. And that spur is to be part of the whole church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, our brother prayed about about key missionaries and about that need that we should be you know, attuned to those who are hungry, those who sorrow, those who are in need. And that's for everyone, but it you know, starts in the house of God, doesn't it? You know? To know something of the suffering of your fellow Christians, to pray for them, to send aid to them, and to be prepared to be one of them. Remember Philippians 2, friends, whereby Christ left his throne above to come down to us to be with us as a servant. 
And the history of the church just overflows with stories of those men and women who left their comfortable life to dedicate themselves to be long-term missionaries. Remember those men and women who throughout the centuries have sold themselves into slavery so as to be able to preach Christ to those who suffered under that same yoke. Remember our brothers and sisters today who are imprisoned and face beatings and execution for owning the name of Christian. Think to yourself whether you have the mind and heart which knows what our Lord really meant when he said in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Is it our comfortable position and the fact that we can be cool Christians which makes us not seek God in prayer when something goes awry? Do we need to wake up, know what we are as Christians and start praying? Well, our second point is called the need for courage. Let's continue to see in our story what happens here in Esther chapter 4. She has sent her response to Mordecai and in verse 12 it says it was delivered and then in verses 13 and 14 Mordecai fires back. It says he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house you alone of all the Jews will escape. If you remain silent at this time relief and deliverance for the Jews will come Sorry, will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Now, I don't know about you, friends, but I cannot read those words without pins and needles creeping all over me. Mordecai tells Esther bluntly that she will not escape simply because she's the queen. All the time, Esther, sorry, Mordecai has told Esther to hide the fact that she is a Jew and now he's telling her that the game is up. She can hide her identity no longer. And even if she thinks she can hide, he says in verse 14, she'll not be able to and her family will perish and so will she. Mordecai is charging Esther here to have courage. Courage to take a stand or to die anyway, but as a coward. Even if the Jews are rescued in another way, Esther will die in her fears. But there's something extra in what he says there in verse 14. That's the bit that probably really gets me going. If Esther keeps silent, he says, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Now, Esther's a very strange book, and it's the only book in the Bible where the name of God's never mentioned. It's absolutely bizarre. But God's there, isn't he? We find that out as we go through the book. But this is the closest we get in the whole book to the mention of the name of God in the entire book of Esther. You see, they were in the biggest empire of the world, whereby King Xerxes had 127 provinces and Leah after layer of authority under his command, help would not arise from within the empire, you know, some insurgent forces. Okay, the Jews, they're not going to do anything. They were in mourning, not preparing for an armed uprising. There was not a foreign army at the time that could have gotten close. They couldn't have even marched into the outskirts of the empire, let alone to the capital. 
And unlike our country, there was no high court to review the king's edict. The deliverance Mordecai refers to is the direct intervention of the Lord of heaven. And then come the words from Mordecai which galvanize Esther into action. And who knows whether you have come to, but that you have come into royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai is saying to Esther to put aside that she has hidden her Jewish identity for so long. To put aside the fact that she's married a pagan king by essentially winning a beauty contest and to do the only right thing, to have courage, even if it costs her her life in the acts. In verse 15, we hear that Esther has a reply for Mordecai. And that reply is found in verse 16. And she says, go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther finally acts, doesn't she? She acts no longer as a compromiser, but she acts as a queen with a heart of courage. She orders fasting by all the Jews in the capital, and she and her ladies will also fast for three days and nights, As before, we find no mention of prayer, but at least she has found the fortitude to act. She resolves to approach the king with those stirring words, and if I perish, I perish. There's a tone of resignation in what she says isn't there. She's very clear in the original Hebrew, and thankfully it's really brought out well in our English translation. However, I respectfully here differ from many of the published commentators at this point. A lot of commentators, when you read through them on this part of Esther, they say things like, oh, you know, Esther's speech is a statement of resignation to the inevitable rather than one of robust faith. And while I agree, and I've already said it, that Esther should have... I don't know what happened, sorry. Microphone glitch, is it? Yeah. Well, Esther should have, in faith, prayed to God during all of this. I think her follow-up actions show her to be those... uh, show her... uh, words show her to be a woman who has found courage while facing death. Now, we don't have time to go through the details of what happens in chapter 5, but she daringly approaches the king and she cleverly organises a feast and at that feast she reveals that she is a Jew when she pleads for the life of her people. And so the tone of resignation when she answers Mordecai, you know, if I perish, I perish, is one where there is now a desire to take the risk with bravery where she had only hidden before. Well, let's make a brief application, friends, of this second point. Now, the first point we applied with the question as to whether we are too comfortable, this time we ask about courage. Now, relax just a little bit. We're not being asked here if we would have the nerve to be executed for our faith or martyred in some horrible fashion, although... That would be a good thing for you to ask yourselves perhaps later today. Instead, the question arising here from our passage is whether you realise that just like Queen Esther, in spite of your own history of failure to stand up and be counted as a Christian, 
All right, and again, this includes me. Despite our failings in the past, could you be used by the Lord to be courageous for something, perhaps even something that really matters? You know, all the times that we've remained silent instead of speaking a word about Jesus Christ into a conversation, all the times that, you know, you've gone shy instead of taking an open, glaring opportunity to share with someone about Christ's death on the the cross as their way to eternal life. All the times you've been too afraid of being viewed poorly rather than being counted as a disciple of Jesus. And despite all that, do you think that God could be calling you sometime, and even maybe today, even maybe this week, to be brave for him? Well, the answer from this part of Esther's life, of course, is a resounding yes. Our passage is telling you to put aside the thoughts from where you have failed. Repent of them, absolutely. Repent of them for sure. But don't be weighed down by them. And go ahead in courage today. And you might be tested at work or at school or with friends, neighbours tomorrow. And the answer remains, be courageous despite all your past failings. Be courageous now to do what the Lord commands all of his children to do. Well, our final point is called the need for a better mediator. Our final point concerns the role Esther plays as a mediator and how that role is a shadow of a much better mediator. You see, what Esther does is she goes between the Jews in their desperate need and King Xerxes, who has issued an edict against them. She mediates between the two parties. You know, she's a go-between. She uh, tries to make peace between two people who are not at peace. Okay? And salvation comes to God's people when it had seemed impossible before. Esther, as a mediator here, is a shadow of the greater mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, who mediates between sinful people, that's us, and the holy God of heaven, who has issued an edict against them. And that edict is, as Ezekiel 18 puts it, the soul who sins shall die. Now, King Xerxes was foolish, wasn't he? He acted in haste when he heard Haman's you know, whispering, worm-tongue-ish talk. The Lord God, however... He's not foolish. He warned our first parents, Adam and Eve, against disobeying him. And his edict is firm, it is wise, and it is righteous against sin and against those who are lost in Adam's sin. And just like the Jews in Persia in the time of Esther, we are utterly powerless against the edict touching us. And so we must appeal to a mediator. Someone to go on our behalf and represent us before the king who was pronounced against us. Unlike King Xerxes, the offended king in our case, thankfully, is our loving Heavenly Father. Now, his anger, make no mistake, his anger burns against sin and against sinners. But he delights in repentance and he joyfully receives those who come to him through the great mediator, Jesus Christ. And salvation is ours if we trust in Christ for his death and his death for our sake where it previously seemed impossible. So firm was the resolution against us. 
You see, Esther, admirable, courageous, effective as she was, had her thoughts and limitations. Esther needed a jolt to make her realise her people's plight. Compare that with the Lord Jesus, who intentionally came in the most humble fashion, born in a stable, found in the form of a servant, his whole life on this earth suffering misunderstanding and humiliation and persecution and betrayal, all the while identifying with and showing love to the sinners who did this to him. Esther was reluctant to do what she had to do and she needed forceful persuasion from Mordecai. Compare that with the Lord Jesus. This is why we had John 10 as our first reading. Who said in John 10 that he lays down his life for the sheep and he does it deliberately and willingly. He does it of his own accord, he said. Esther was limited in the power and extent of her role as mediator. She could only really wait upon the king's pleasure and arrange a feast, albeit with brilliant strategy. Compare that with the Lord Jesus Christ who has defeated sin and death and the works of the devil by giving his life upon the cross and taking that life up again. Esther was limited in what her mediatorship achieved. It saved the Jews from extermination at the time, but it could not secure them from future persecution and exile. Compare that to the Lord Jesus Christ, friends, whose death once and for all has irrevocably and eternally saved those who are his own people. And the application, I'm finishing with this, the application for us of this final point of our talk today is very simple and it is this. As you consider the story of Esther, you cannot come to any other conclusion but to admire this young lady for the way the Lord used her as a mediator to save his people. But as you think upon this, there is a strong call from the story to consider the greater mediator, Jesus Christ. Now if you do not have him as your mediator yet, I feel bold to say this because I don't know all the faces here. If you do not have him as your mediator yet, as the one who has gone between you as a sinner and God the Father as judge, then it is time to do so now. And I actually, I don't promise that these scriptures, this book that we read, they promise that you will find him to be a 100% effective mediator. And you will find God the Father to be willing in love to receive you in Christ. And if this is something you already have done, that is if you are a Christian already, then the lesson is to not replace Jesus, however subtly, with another source of hope in life and death. To not exist in spiritual poverty like Mordecai and Esther did up until that point and think that we can stay you know, in society's favour without compromising our faith and witness. To not wallow in spiritual poverty like Esther and Mordecai did and so neglect coming to the Lord in prayer. Rather to take hold of what we have in Christ as our great mediator and know that we belong to him now and to live in the world but not be of the world.
and finally to take hold of Christ's role as our great mediator and have as your first reaction to pray and have as the next thing you do to pray and finally to pray in all situations. Let's do that now. Our loving God, we thank you for what we can learn from this part of uh, the story of Esther. And Lord, we thank you that uh, she woke up, as did Mordecai. We thank you for the courage on display. And we pray that we'll glean lessons from this. But Lord, above all this, we thank you that Esther points us to the great mediator. We ask that every person in this room Every person watching this telecast, be a man, a woman, boy or girl, would have Jesus as their great mediator, the one who has gone between us as unholy and you as holy and judge, and that we'll know the loving, open-armed acceptance that we have with you in him, and that from there we'll live godly lives that are marked by prayerfulness. And we ask this in his name.